From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. For nearly a century, we've had compelling evidence that smoking is a significant factor contributing to lung cancer, heart disease, and many other disorders. And it was way back in 1964 that a U.S. Surgeon General's report officially linked smoking to deaths from these conditions. At that time, 42% of American adults were smokers. The tobacco companies knew their products were causing these terrible diseases. And despite this, these companies put chemicals in their products to make them even more addictive, guaranteeing that even more people would die from their products. And yet it wasn't until a multi-state lawsuit in the late 1990s that tobacco companies were held accountable for these actions. Today, smoking remains a public health concern, but only about 12% of Americans still smoke. The rate of smoking falls almost every year, and we are healthier as a result. Except, here's the thing. At the same time smoking rates have been falling, the portion of our diets that comes from ultra-processed foods has been rising. And these foods often contain high amounts of sugar as well as chemical additives that trick our brains to desire them even more. And that's leading to soaring rates of diabetes, cancer, dementia, and chronic disease. If it took a big lawsuit to change the practices of American tobacco companies and help lower rates of smoking, could a similar strategy work to mitigate the damages being done to our collective health by ultra-processed food companies? Well, Eric Pepper thinks it just might. And in a recent analysis with co-author Richard Harvey, Pepper argues that the food companies bear vast responsibility for an epidemic in diseases and that their products should be regulated like tobacco, and that it might take a class action suit to make it happen. Pepper is a professor at San Francisco State University, where his teaching and research focuses on self-healing strategies, illness prevention, the effects of posture and respiration, and how to use biofeedback and wearable devices. He first joined us in 2018 to talk about how posture impacts mental performance, And then he came to chat with us again in 2020 about dealing with stress caused by technology. Eric Pepper, it is always a joy to talk to you. Matthew, what pleasure. And, you know, you so precisely gave the introduction. I make the analogy between smoking and then there's a 20-year delay between smoking and the increases in, in heart disease, cancers. We see something very similar in foods. And, you know, if you think about foods, it's so our foods are so different than those which we used to have in our evolutionary background. There's this massive change since the really the 1970s more than anything, but a little bit earlier than that, when we started to use pesticides, herbicides, and we started to really start making high processed foods. And they are really designed not for health, they're designed to increase profits. They're designed for taste for mouthfeel. So we want them. And they are, in that sense, addictive. Think about it from a very simplistic part of a baby. A baby's first exposure is breast milk. It's sweet and it's nutritious. So we are wired to take in sweets or anything that has calories or fats because we need it to let our bodies grow and we need the energy from those foods. I think that's an important point to make because a lot of people feel quite guilty about eating these foods, but these are foods that we are evolutionarily designed to want and desire, just not in the amounts that they are being given to us now. 
your point is so well stated there. And the error of this problem or the, the challenge in this problem is that we are, as I said, wired for these foods. However, these foods are now essentially becoming harmful. None of the foods in our past had so much sugar, so many artificial chemicals, so limited in some ways in the appropriate nutritional components. Even if you just compare the foods from 40 years ago, we realize they're 15 to 20% lower in iron and vitamins, etc. just because how we have now done farming. And then we get these calories. But I want to go back for a moment to that concept of an evolutionary trap, because basically we would say to children, you shouldn't eat that sweets. We all know it a little bit. Too much sugar is not good for you, most likely. But what happens? We are asking a child who's really wired to want sweets, to want calories, to want fats. And then what we do, we tell the child, you should have self-control. You should not eat those things. Or adults, I should have self-control. And then I find when I get to the supermarket and there in front of me are all these foods which are stimulized to my eye that tell me I want to eat those. And then we demand that I have self-control. I would argue that that is asking almost the impossible. These artificial and harmful ultra-processed foods involving sugar played a role in the risk of certain diseases that you've noted were much less prevalent in history. And we might note here that while average lifespans have increased dramatically in the past century, maximum lifespans haven't. And so we can't just chalk this up to the fact that people didn't live long enough to get these diseases. Even among people who lived much longer lives, these chronic conditions were much less common before sugar became such a huge part of many human diets. It's just shocking. And if you look back in the history of sugar, which is a good example, we realize that diabetes almost did not exist till the 18th century. Yes, it did exist among people from very much upper class, because sugar was very expensive, till we finally figured out a way to produce sugar very cheaply. But now sugar is everywhere. And when we eat sugar, we get a massive insulin response. The insulin helps store the, the sugar as fats. We become more likely obese. And obesity is one of the biggest problems in the United States. We develop more inflammatory disease and we are at risk for diabetes. Now I look at my students in my class. It's shocked. One third most likely will get diabetes. But it's even worse than that. I am not saying that just the food, but it does say something is changing. We, and yet we are totally unaware what those factors are. Well, because our diets have changed so quickly, and yet our digestive systems have not had time to evolve to efficiently process foods like those that we are increasingly consuming. Correct. And then we add all these other substances to it. And the food is now often so super refined. Plus, you ingest some of the pesticides. I know the FDA says the pesticides are acceptable. However, if you compare the, the pesticide levels that are acceptable in the U.S. compared to the EU, we realize that in the EU, for example, glyphosate, which is Monsanto's Roundup, they allow only one-tenth of the level than in the U.S., it isn't healthy, and we are accumulators. We forget that. You mentioned earlier that we can't really expect children to have self-control. And I want to mention here, we're not just talking about children, but this is where we get our dietary habits, where we get our expectations about what food should taste like. And one of the things that I often think of is that we don't just 
tell children make good decisions, we also provide these foods to children as rewards, as celebrations. It's your birthday. Here's a birthday cake. You know, it's really kind of an act of cruelty that we are imparting on our children to tell them that they should associate these ultra processed foods, sugar laden foods with happiness and mirth and celebration. And there's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with a good piece of cake sometimes, but you have to ask what are the ingredients of that? It's the highly refined processes. They are artificially combined and then maybe we are missing a certain vitamin and then we add a vitamin to it. No. Food is complex. We don't want to eat vitamins. We want to eat whole foods. Go back to the diet we were sort of evolved to exist with. So we're taking our cues from marketers instead of nature. And we'd be much better off learning from fellow animals. When a carnivore, a lion, kills its animal, what does it eat first? It rips open the belly. It eats the liver and the organs. The reason is that the liver and many of the organs contain the nutrients, they contain the vitamins, the minerals which are missing in the muscle tissue. This is all about nutrient-dense foods. This is stuff that we often toss aside, or certainly that we've decided no longer needs to play such a leading role in our diets. And you've suggested that this comes at a cost in terms of chronic diseases. You can see this as a scientific study with the Inuit people in the Arctic. Before they ate the Western diet, their diet was often lots of high meat, but they would eat the seal, they would eat the liver, all those organs, there was nothing to be wasted. They had almost no incidence of cancer, no incidence of diabetes. Then with the advent of television and advertising, they were introduced, they were then introduced to the traditionally Western medicine. And within a generation, you saw this increase in cancers. You saw an increase in diabetes. And at that point, you start to realize that there must be something with the food supply and what is accessible to people. And when I say accessible, I mean, it's often the very unhealthy things that are marketed to us that are figuratively shoved down our throats. It's not just what we're drawn to by virtue of some unfortunate evolutionary programming. It's also what's cheap. And it's also what we've been sort of gaslit into believing is healthy. Now think what's happening to much of the food we're eating for many people. In the morning, what do they have? They have this nice very attractive, highly sugary, highly processed cereals. They eat it, now the glucose level drops, they become irritable. And so it's challenging because we are being brainwashed by all the advertisement around us and by the economics. Well, let's talk about that point a little because that sort of helps us segue to this connection between the case you're making about ultra-processed foods and the history of cigarettes. The point you're making here, by the way, we should clarify, isn't that we need to ban foods like this, but that just like cigarettes, which has also not been banned, you can still buy cigarettes in the United States, we may need to consider some more stringent regulations. For instance, like the regulations that we have on cigarettes against advertising them on TV and radio. I mean, we think of all the ads we see for all these great foods, especially in children's programs or in all kinds of media, we are then programmed by the media to want to have those foods. The trouble is when I eat them, they are negatively for my health. And they really develop 
mild malnutrition. It's, I call it affluent malnutrition. Thus, I am totally persuaded that the foods are one of the factors, not the only one, that increases ill health in our children and our adults. The simplest one, and it's only so simple, it's not the only one at all, is the epidemic of diabetes, which leads eventually to kidney failure, even vision loss, or massive costs of, of, for people's quality of life as well. Thus, we need to really reduce the advertisement of that. I personally think we should have rules that highly sugared foods, all the snack foods, should be highly taxed, so they become very expensive. Like cigarettes? Yes, we should not allow them almost to be bought by, by young people. You should want to be essentially old enough, ideally, to be able to make a decision. I want to have this junk food because I can make a conscious decision. Even if you're older, it is still not a conscious decision totally because you're always fighting or struggling with your evolutionary desire for these sweets or your conditioned response to these sweets. Well, and moreover, as you've noted, many of the chemicals added to these foods make people want to eat them even more. There's this addictive additive part of this equation. Yes, and that is what we have forgotten. And the food companies have been brilliant with this. And that's just like smoking. Yeah, and it really does harken back to what the tobacco companies were doing in the late 1900s to make smoking even more addictive. They added sugars and flavors and menthol to dull the harshness of the smoke and make it easier to inhale. And then they added ammonia so that the nicotine would travel to the brain faster. And then they that wasn't good enough, so they added even more nicotine itself because that's what makes smoking addictive. The parallels between these two cases are quite striking. Yes, and then you add, you look at the the fructose, you know, the addition of the of the many sugars. Almost all foods have increased their sugar intake. We cannot escape it. Remember, in the 17th century, we may have had five kilos or less of sugar a year. Now, the average American eats 150 pounds of sugar a year. That's a radical change. I think people are eating their body weight in sugar every year in some cases. Yes, you need the calories. I am not saying don't eat sugars because we our, our cells need glucose. However, it's this is much too much and it leads to significant long-term harm. I think that is the real challenge with this. This, this is not just a problem in the United States. This is a growing concern all over the world where people are increasingly adopting diets that look like this North American Western diet. Yes. And I would say that we, we cannot ask industry to control themselves because they're beholden to their stockholders who want more profit. Ultra processed foods are highly profitable. The more you sell, the better you do. And so that's why there are two strategies, one of which we've spoken about so far. This is, you know, personal action, you know, making better personal choices. But to limit smoking, personal action wasn't enough. And you've suggested that to limit the consumption of ultra-processed foods, because these companies are not going to regulate themselves and because as a society, it is very hard for only personal action to make large changes in public health behaviors, we're going to need regulation. What kind of regulation do you think would work best? You mentioned some earlier, taxation being one of them. Well, I would say start at the school level. The USDA often supplies all the, the foods for, for young children at the school level. Rule one, those foods should not be ultra processed. You know, even just make it much more simple. And that needs to be governmental because these are all food policies. That's one. Two, 
high school or junior high school levels or grade school, especially in colleges, there should not be fast food around. I mean, I would say get rid of all the vending machines with all their power drinks and all the drinks that contain the high amount of glucose or sugars. This, this idea you're mentioning here, uh, it's not dissimilar to rules that are in place in many states that limit what kind of businesses can be around schools. In many states, for instance, you are not allowed to have a bar within a certain distance of a public school. That's a similar suggestion that you have for fast food. I would say it's even more than that. Because many universities and many places, the fast food is embedded in the universities because they get money for selling the food. One way to subsidize education is that you sell those foods and the more they sell, a certain percentage goes back to the, to the organization. And to me, that is immoral. We should be role modeling what is optimum health. It's about what we are putting in front of people and under what conditions they can access that. And again, it's just those things are systemic. I said highly processed foods should be labeled and taxed. We should not allow advertisement for those kind of foods. You know, and all the labels we see on foods, this is heart health or whatever. Remember, those are not really studies. The, those companies paid the heart association or other association that that staple put on their food. So think there's no advertisement that broccoli or regular uh, sweet potatoes are good for you. There's no sign that says that is heart health, but those are the heart health ones. And yet we go to the, to the cereal aisle and every box has another label how healthy it is. Okay, so we've talked about personal action. We've talked about the potential of regulation, you know, label and tax. Of course, these companies that produce this food, they are big campaign donors to the politicians in the United States. So the chances of regulation seem pretty low at this time in our nation's history as well. But you've also suggested maybe another way. Maybe it's time for a class action lawsuit against producers and merchants of ultra-processed foods who know what they are peddling, know what they are selling, know its connection to disease, to chronic disease and long-term disability and death, maybe a class action lawsuit should be taken into consideration. I think in our United States, sadly to say that we cannot, and I'm being very harsh, not clearly trust the FDA nor the USDA in their regulations, as many of them are changed because of in lobbying efforts and because they're made as a political decision at times or influenced by that. The only piece that is left for the American public, in a sense, is to go through this horrendous process of a legal process, which finally tobacco industry that brought tobacco industry down. It wasn't government regulations initially. It was the lawsuits that led to the government regulations. And I see the same thing that needs to be done to food industries. There is enough data now to look at generically that many of these foods are contributing factors to these illnesses. The core, you know, the trouble is it's difficult. I'm being honest to prove a class action suit because people can say, well, you know, it's not just only the food. They didn't exercise or do other things. Sure, which was very much the argument that the tobacco industry made for very many years to prevent action at that time as well. And we know now as well that the initial decisions, for example, about whether it was fats or sugars that were responsible for heart disease, which is the decisions in the 1970s, that was based upon a total lie 
just like the tobacco industry did. This was an argument between the British researchers who said it was sugars and a Harvard researcher who said it was fats and a Harvard researcher having a bigger name and was funded by the sugar industry won the argument. And later on, when these files became available, people realized the data wasn't there. And in fact, the British researcher was correct. Yet another analogous situation to the tobacco industry in the mid to late 1900s, which was funding researchers. And those researchers were making claims about the use of cigarettes that turned out to be very much untrue, but also insulated that industry against further criticism and further action. Yes. And so for the consumer, it's really difficult to know, you know, when you read research, how to make sense out of the data. The question you can always ask very quickly is, who is the funder behind the research? And if the funder is possibly food companies, I'd be more hesitant to trust the data. It's just a a cynical bias I now have, because if you're a researcher, if you produce data that is not favorable to your sponsor, you will not get a grant. And every researcher needs to survive. Eric, actually, let me me go to this. There's a really fascinating chart in your latest work that shows the expansion and then contraction of cigarette sales. And you've plotted on it all the way points in the fight against smoking, the 1970s regulations that limited advertisements, and then the 1980s federal taxes, and then in the 1990s, California's ban on smoking in restaurants, which led eventually to almost all states in you know the period of the next 20 years banning smoking in restaurants. And then there's this other arc that shows the falling rate of deaths from lung cancer. And there is a delay of a few decades between the time that these interventions happen and the time that death decline. But I guess the point that I'm trying to make here is that even once these interventions happen, we're not likely to see an immediate association with decreased disease and decreased death, we're going to have to be a little bit patient. What you see is a 20-year delay between the smoking increase and the increase in lung cancer. And then when smoking goes down, there's about a 20-year delay before the lung cancer rates go down. I would expect the same thing or something very similar in the foods. You already see the epidemic occurring in a total different way with the increase in diabetes, which then will lead to an increase in dementias kidney disease, etc. If we start changing our foods, we'll see the biggest effect will be in the people who are not eating those highly processed foods. They won't develop those illnesses and a slower decline in those who have been eating it for a long time. However, our bodies are remarkably flexible, just like the smoking. If you smoked and then you stop smoking, your risk goes down. The food is the same way. We know that in type 2 diabetes, if you really change your diet, change your lifestyle, many people can significantly reduce the need of any medications. It isn't easy because we're talking about a lifestyle. But it's certainly easier than living life with diabetes. And the increased risk of Alzheimer's, This is, I think these are the things that we need to help people remember that they are working against. Because it is, you say, it is very hard to change your lifestyle, but it is also, I know some people with diabetes, with advanced diabetes, it's very hard to live with diabetes as well. I totally agree. 
informal reports all the time. I have students, you know, who come in class, they feel totally sleepy, you know, they're not present. They all do self-healing projects, which is really a benefit for at least five weeks. That includes diet change often and some other things. And when they all of a sudden regularize their lifestyle, they change their foods, their energy level goes up, they just feel better. So I would just say to anyone who's listening, do a you know three-week or five-week challenge with yourself. Remove all the highly processed foods. Really have a breakfast, lunch, and dinner of unpro you know, using organic ideally if you financially can afford of more organic foods and whole foods. And then see how you feel. You know, have lots of fruits and veggies in your diet. But when we do this with our students, it's shocking. Almost all report they have more energy. Sometimes their headaches just decrease. Their hyperactivity may be decreasing. You know, I now call this grandmother therapy. <laughs> <laughs> That's Eric Pepper. He's a professor at San Francisco State University where his teaching and research focuses on self-healing strategies, illness prevention, the effects of posture and respiration, and how to use biofeedback and wearable devices. And his recent analysis with co-author Richard Harvey suggests that ultra-processed foods should be regulated like tobacco and that it might take a class action lawsuit to make it happen. Eric Pepper, thank you. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And from listeners like you, you can support our work at donate.nprstations.org slash UPR. Our producer is Reagan Edelman. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.